Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today we have a very special guest with us. He is a producer. He is a songwriter, a a bad man on on the bass, a musician, and a dear friend of mine, uh, Mr. Greg Richling. Welcome. How you doing? Good to see you, Lam. Thanks for having me. I was trying to figure out which T-shirt to wear because I always wear different uh, band tees, and I'm like. Uh, I was pulling out something with the cool bass players and stuff, but I'm like, you know, have you ever listened to Black Joe Lewis? So I've heard of them, but I, I have yet to listen. So now it's on my list. There you go. I, it's a just super cool retro shirt. I just saw it. I just saw him and, and his band, uh, the Honey Bears, if I remember correctly, with their call at the, at the Venice West. Highly recommended. Super, super cool. Great, but always so, always love a good music tip. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into that too. I, I like to get some of uh, your music tips. You've been giving me uh, some, uh, which are really really good. Um, so when we before we get going into, uh, I like to kind of get a uh, a background. So let's start with where you grew up. Mm. Yeah, so I'm a local native of Los Angeles. I was born in Santa Monica and uh, raised in West LA. Those people do exist. They do. <laughs> they do. Few and far between, but I'm one of them. <laughs> so uh, 
you and you grew up uh so you grew up in the in the la area uh you, your parents together do you have siblings uh you know my, my parents have been split up since i was about seven years old and i have a half brother from my father's second marriage and we're very close we talk all the time and he's really into movies and, and music you know just like me so we have a lot to talk about we we pretty much talk daily very and, cool yeah and growing up in la obviously you know sort of the epicenter for all of that um so it, it, i had a great childhood here you know i walked uh i in my teens i was a teenager in the 80s which you know is sort of my still my favorite era of music um i lived eight blocks from the original rhino records oh wow so i'd take my paper route money every sunday and i'd walk and buy a couple vinyl you know flip through and flip through the bins read the liner notes and that's kind of how i cut my teeth that's how i grew up so what was your what was your first sort of uh memory of music were you were you in a musical household or was there a school like what was your motivation for music in the first place yeah so um neither of my parents play instruments but my father was really or is really into music and so he always had, you know, music playing in the car. That's what I remember the most about being, you know, like a nine, 10, 11 year old is, you know, being in my father's car. And he loved um, everything from Steve Winwood to Teddy Pendergrass to Toto to, you know, to, I remember uh, Steely Dan Gaucho and Asia being in the car a lot. You know, those were kind of the, you know, Doobie Brothers minute by minute. Yeah. That was my intro to music was that kind of, you know, era in the, you know, seventies, early eighties. So when you were listening to music, did you kind of think to yourself, this is, I really like music. I enjoy listening to it, but when did that shift into, well, I want to contribute to music. I want to play, I want to do something musically or, or that wasn't the case until later on. Yeah. So when I was about 12, um, some friends of mine, you know, that I'd grown up with started to play instruments, keyboards, guitars, and, uh, you know, started writing songs. And so then the transfer occurred, you know, from just being a, a listener to, oh, well, maybe this would be fun to pick up an instrument. Um, and so, yeah, around 1982, it was sort of the typical situation of, you know, they've got the drummer they've got the guitar player, they've got the singer guitar player, but they don't have the bass player, you know? And I had been listening to K-Rock a lot in the early 80s, and I was a big fan of a lot of the, the new wave stuff of the day, you know, Human League and Echo and the Bunnymen and, you know, Psychedelic Furs, Simple Minds, kind of that, that whole genre. And I kind of started to notice the bass on radio as that was the instrument that I was sort of being pointed to. And kind of fell in love with it at that point. And it was, you know, that around that era that I picked up a, you know, a cheap Kramer copy of a Steinberger, you know, total, total 80s, right? No tuning pegs on the headstock, you know, <laughs> and uh, started taking lessons, I believe, at a place in Santa Monica called Ace Music. Okay. And I just began learning the songs that I really liked that were on the radio and, you know, learning some simple, you know, scales and so forth and then i joined the band and i think what was really interesting was when i joined the band around you know when i was around 13 years old my friends were writing original music at a young age so we were doing covers 
and originals at the same time rehearsing in uh, the drummer's very tiny bedroom you know amp on the bed little <laughs> drum kit in the corner you know was was the bass the first instrument that you actually picked up it actually wasn't the, the i i don't know who or how i this happened but i took some classical guitar lessons for a little while um interestingly from a guy named val mccallum who ended up playing on my band the wallflowers fourth album and he's a he's in jack shit you know as you know and he's he's yeah. been jackson brown's guitar player for a long time um he uh was like a young guy at the time and i i took you know some classical lessons from him but as it turns out you know that i just didn't feel that was the instrument for me and and kind of moved on fairly quickly yeah got it um were your parents supportive of sort of your pursuit of music yeah absolutely in fact, you know, I, I had to make that decision. I think that that a lot of kids have to make in high school where, you know, you're on the basketball team and all of a sudden, you know, it becomes, you know, are you going to basketball practice after school or are you going to band practice? Because we were getting pretty serious about it. And so, you know, I played hoop for, you know, a couple of years and then I went to my coach and I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I have band practice after school and we we practiced a lot. Mm. Uh, and um you know, that was kind of the beginning. I, I started playing clubs in Los Angeles at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, my first gig was at Madame Wong's West, which was a club on Wilshire around like Yale and Harvard Avenue. You know, there was a, it was like a house on the corner that had been converted into a club. It was very famous back in the day. There was one in Chinatown and there was one on the West side. So when I was 14, I started playing clubs with my band. We played Madame Wong's. We played the Troubadour. Uh, but when I was growing up, I actually was in two bands. I was playing drums in one band and bass in another. So, you know, as a drummer, I played clubs like the Anti-Club, and I played the Troubadour as a drummer as well. But, you know, bass is what I kind of eventually gravitated towards and stuck with. Got it. So when did you actually meet uh, Jacob Dillon? So Jacob and I went to high school together. Mm-hmm. So we met in the eighth grade. Anyway. Um, was he a musician at that time or was he into that? At yeah. All? You know, it's interesting. He was, he was playing guitar. He was more of a rhythm guitar player at the time and getting into songwriting. So what he would do is he would do these instrumental recordings and then I would come over and lay bass down at his home studio or play a drum track. It was it was more just sort of like demoing material. And then, you know, as high school progressed, he got into a couple of bands like the Boot Heels. And, um, and he was the rhythm guitar player in that band, though. He still hadn't come out as a front man. You know, the Boot Heels were, they were a great band fronted by a guy named Luther Russell, who eventually formed a band who put a couple records out on Geffen uh, under the name The Freewheelers. Okay. So they were a band that came up when, you know, when the Wallflowers first got a deal with Virgin in like 1991. So going over, I'm just trying to picture this, going over Jacob's house, was uh, was his dad around? No, never. He was <laughs> on the road. They call it the never-ending tour for a reason. <laughs> right, because it was there for years. I mean, he was gone all the time, you know. So when you were a kid, you didn't get a chance to meet. And, and for those of you that don't know, that's uh, Bob Dylan, Jacob's uh, uh, dad. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we were good friends and we hung out a lot. But 
I didn't meet Bob until I was in the band, you know, and maybe we crossed paths on tour. We did one show where we opened for him for a corporate gig. Um, and then, uh, you know, he'd come to a couple shows of ours and, you know, I, I met him as we got a little bit older at back, you know, sort of like, you know, barbecues and stuff like that at Jake's house for kids parties and stuff like that, you know, but yeah, he was gone a lot. Yeah. We were at that point, you know, we toured a ton, you know? So, when you uh so you're you're in high school you're you're in bands in the in middle school i guess and then uh in in high school i uh, so you're you're taking this career you know seriously you're gonna ha- be in a band at what point did you get like uh i have my band i'm doing this but then you get a call from jake uh jacob and says hey we have this little thing that we're doing over here it's a band we're touring maybe uh you want to hop in yeah, well, I know we're kind of, you know, we're we're skipping around a lot here, but I I was in a few bands all through high school, and I always looked at music as just sort of a fun thing. I never really looked at it as, you know, something that I was necessarily going to do professionally. It just never crossed my mind for whatever reason back in those days. And so my mother was in, uh, worked for an executive producer in television, so during summers I would always PA on television shows and. I kind of had an interest in that world as well, right? So I kind of had these dual interests. So when it came time to apply for college, I actually ended up going to Boston for film school. And when I got to Boston, I I brought my bass and somebody heard me playing in the dorm room and invited me down to their rehearsal and I eventually joined their band. So I had a band in college called The Cake Eaters. And that uh, main songwriter was... Um, Actually, uh, Rachel Dratch from Saturday Night Live's brother, Dan, uh, you know, Rachel Dratch, who does all of the the Boston accents with Jimmy Fallon and all right, of that. Right, right. Yep. So we ended up having a group together. And then I ended up, you know, playing all the clubs in Boston, all the famous clubs that, you know, all the bands like Aerosmith and the Cars came up playing like the Rat Stellar, you know, in Kenmore Square. And, uh, you know, we just played all over the place for like three years. And then when I... My my senior year of of uh, college, I left the band. I kind of had realized that that wasn't a band that I wanted to stick with long term, and so I I left that band. And when I graduated, I came back to LA. I started working for TriStar Television for a producer, and it was in '92 when I came home uh, that I got the or it was actually '93 that I I was working at TriStar and I got the call to see if I wanted to join the wallflowers they had uh fired their bass player a week before a tour th- that was starting in like seven days and you know, i came down and rehearsed in a friend's garage that was located right behind the whiskey um and so you know the band had already when i was in college the band had already put out uh one record for virgin so i wasn't on the debut record but i toured that album like the the end of the touring cycle for that and, uh, you know, so I learned about 25 songs and seven days later, I found myself, you know, uh, opening for 10,000 maniacs. Uh, we were at a, my first show with the band was in Salem, Oregon at an outdoor amphitheater in front of like 5,000 people. So I'd gone from not being in a band my senior year to playing, you know, you know, in front of a ton of people. It was a, it was a trip. So, so. Take me through sort of the mindset of you're in a band and you're like, you know what? This isn't connecting with me. 
I'm not sure that this is where I want to go. Was it more of like the style of music that you sort of had in your head that wasn't being expressed? You weren't, what was the the mindset of saying, you know, this, this isn't me or, or just the dynamic of the people? Yeah. You know, it's it, these things. It's funny because, you know, 30 some years have gone by. Right. And it's in, when I go back in, in my head and think about these things, the answer that I would give, you know, if I'm to be truthful about it is, you know, it, it is a little difficult because the reason I left that band in college was that, you know, if I were to stay there and be in this band and, and, and make it like the thing that I was going for, you know, professionally, um, you know, I knew that I really had to believe that this band had what it takes. And then, you know, and, and I just, at the time I, I just, in my heart, I felt like it, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough to, to invest my life in any longer, you know, and yeah. stay in Boston. I just, I felt that there were, you know, some weaknesses. I just, I, I, I didn't kind of think that the front man kind of had that thing that was going to carry it, you know, and, and they made me admit why I was leaving at the time. And it was really, really tough because I just wanted to, you know, I'm going to move on. I'm going to go home, you know, and they were, and they were drilling me. Like, we want to know why you're leaving. And they really just held me to it. Yeah. So I told them, you know, and it, you know, some relationships disappeared after that. <laughs> I'm sure. But I think you did them a favor too, because if people listen constructively, it, it seems to me because you played in different bands and you were around that. And you also are such a fan of music. You, there is there is this, um, yes, you can be musically really, really good and talented. You can play really well. But there's those intangibles that make this band sort of connect with the audience. And the person who's in the front and the musicians, the shows. Because I see shows all the time. And sometimes you go and I can, they're great musicians. Like you can tell. But there's something, they're just standing there. There's something lack of showmanship. And then I see... You know, like, look at the punk bands, you know, some of them weren't the best musicians in the world, but man, you come out and you got that energy exchange with the audience. So it's definitely that intangible thing that's hard to communicate. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were moving in the right direction and I was actually liking the songs that we were doing towards the end of my, you know, time with them, you know, but yeah, it just, I didn't, I didn't feel it had that thing, you know, it just, uh. It was fun while it lasted, as they right. say. Yeah, well, everything is learning experience. You, you get to that. So uh, take me to the moment you're first on stage, not with the Wallflowers. Like you have your band and you come out on stage like Troubadour. There's a whole lot of people, but still, you have this experience uh, on stage. Was this an experience where... Uh, you know, you're sort of in flow. You're just doing your thing. Was there this uh, audience thing? Was there some stress, anxiety, nerves? Like, what, what was that experience like? If you, you know, remember, I'll go back to the first show at Madame Wong's because yeah. I'd never been on stage before. And it's funny, you know, I remember, you know, family showing up to the gig, friends showing up. I remember that kind of anxiousness of like, okay, we're doing this on a stage now. It's not in you know, it's not in, uh, Mark's bedroom anymore, you know? And, uh, you know, but it was fun, you know what I mean? And we got out there and we did our thing, but you know, what's interesting is that 
when I, when I look back, you know, after all these years of touring that, that, you know, I enjoyed the shows and I enjoyed playing for people. Like say when I was on the road, it was the idle time that I struggled with on the road, you know? And, and it's funny because I would always have friends say to me when, you know, when we were out on tour, you know, and I'd maybe say like, ah, you know, I want to get home or whatever, you know, they'd always say, well, you know, don't you do stuff out there? You know, you know, and, and I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm doing things all day long, but I'm doing things to kind of fill my time. I'm not exactly doing what I want to be doing all day. Right. Like I want to be home. I want to be with friends. I want to see family. And so for me, it was, if I could just have been transported to the gigs right, and be able to live the rest of my life the way I wanted to, I think it wouldn't have been, you know, something that I eventually necessarily left, you know, but you know, it's so, so the reason that I bring that up is that, you know, even my first show, you know, it's like, I realized I love recording. I love rehearsing. I love getting songs together, you know, but you know, the performance side of things wasn't necessarily my favorite aspect of it. I don't know why that is, you know, but I mean, you're, you're, the way that you play from what i've i've seen is you you're in a, you're in a groove and you're in a in a background and you're allowing it, it seems to me that you're in the flow of the music and you're allowing other people to do the show part of it and you're in that flow so it makes sense and i heard this a lot from musicians that it's that downtime between gigs like the 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 gig is the gig it's you show up you do your thing, you have fun with your friends or your, your colleagues, the same thing in the studio. But it, when it comes to, I'm in the hotel room, I'm in the bus, I'm doing, what do I do? So that's when people sort of, oh, we get together and, you know, maybe we do drugs, maybe we get drunk, maybe, maybe like Led Zeppelin, we do some debauchery in a hotel room and, you know, throw meat at, at people and stuff, <laughs> you know, do some craziness. But it's boredom, right? And you're young and everybody's young and try to find things to do that are not like, uh, you know, harmful to yourself in a way. And I think that that may be an area where a lot of people who are not into that lifestyle, they sort of find themselves getting, uh, you know, sick of doing that part. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't into drugs and I didn't, I didn't kind of, self-medicate to like get through the day or, you know, so, you know, even though it was a healthier choice, it didn't make the time any easier. Right. And I don't mean to paint like a negative, you know, view all around. I mean, I had plenty of amazing experiences going on the road and I took advantage of, you know, when we'd go to Europe, I would go see the sites and, you know, I would even go to museums and stuff when we were in the States and go to record stores and, you know, find interesting restaurants. But, um, but you know, when you're on a three month tour, you know, and it's just, you know, every single day you're in a different city and you're pulling your bag in and out, you know, at a certain point, you know, for me, at least I didn't want to live that way anymore. You know, when I got into my early forties, I really, you know, the calling to, to go back to film and do something different, you know, got louder and louder. So, so re refresh my memory of the the wallflowers played and then they took a break and then if i remember uh jacob had solo uh stuff that he did and then and then you guys got back together what 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 was that 
uh, like? Yeah, so I joined the band in 1993. We got signed to Interscope around 95. We put the second record out that had one headlight and Sixth Avenue Heartache in 96. Then we started hitting the, the touring circuit really hard. I went on the road for about two and a half years, pretty much nonstop at that point. I got off the road touring that album like in January of 1998, and we started touring that October of 95. So in 1997 alone, I was gone 11 months. And, you know, it was a lot of touring. And so, and then, you know, in 98, we came back, we started writing for the third album, we started making that record. So we wrote for six months, we made the record for six months, and then we toured that record for about a year. Then we made another one, right? We made the fourth album, toured it, made the fifth album, toured it. Yeah. Um, after we made the fifth album, which came out in 2005, so that so that's the, like touring pretty much on and off from 1993 to 2005. It's about 12 years of of a lot of touring and recording. Um, at that point, we'd had some internal issues, you know, that just kind of creep up. People's lives getting more complicated. Um, you know, we were going through a lot of managers. We're post Napster now. So now it's like, you know, sales aren't really that great, but the touring is what you have. So you're, you're gone a lot more. Um, and so in 2005, we just decided that we needed a, a break and the break turned into a much longer break than I think anybody really anticipated. Um, but we got busy. Everybody got busy. Um, I think between 2005 and the middle of 2011, Jacob did two solo records. Right. And during, during those two records that he put out, he did a solo, he, did, he was doing solo tours. My son was born in 2005. So I got very busy at home. <laughs> yeah. You know, my wife and I, you know, started raising a child and there were sporadic wallflower dates that would pop up here and there between Jacob's solo tours. So he would be on the road for a month and then I would fly out over like, say on a weekend, do a festival with the wallflowers, fly home and he'd go back out on the road. Wow. So there was this interesting period between like 2005 and like, for example, 2009, we put a greatest hits album out and we went on tour for three months in the summer for that. So we we did very little comparatively, right, in terms of like how much we had done before that. Right. It was relatively quiet for the band between 05 and 2011. And then at that point, Jacob had called and said, you know, hey, I've done a couple quiet records for Columbia. They asked for a rock record. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do a rock album, I want to do it with my band. And so he corralled everybody back and, and we, everybody to, was back like Rami and the and Jack, like everybody came back. Yeah. So Jack, actually we'd had a different drummer, Fred Eltrin. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, Fred was touring with a lot of people and he kind of got caught, you know, at the wrong time, so to speak. He was working with Katie Lang. He had done some stuff with her and, uh, so, but we just couldn't wait any longer for various reasons. And so, um, I had started a side project in 2010 with Jack Irons, uh, you know, from people would know him from as the drummer of Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam, um, and Eleven. Yeah. What, what, what was the name of that side project? Yeah. The side project with Jack, uh, was called Arthur Channel. Yeah. He made one debut record for the end records that came, which was a Brooklyn label. Great, great, great album, by the way. I highly recommend it. 
Thank you. Yeah, it came out in like 2013, I believe. And um, so I had started that band because I was getting a little restless during the break, you know, so around 2010, about a year and a half before Jacob called to do another record, I started going to Jack's house, rehearsing about once a week. And I did that for about a year and a half. And we slowly put this record together. And then that got a bit sidetracked when Jacob called to do the Wallflowers. But because Fred didn't come back, I told Jacob, well, we need a drummer. And I've been playing with one of the best drummers around every week for the last year and a half. So it only made perfect sense to get Jack in the band. Um, so, you know, Jacob said, well, let me meet him. You know, so we all met for dinner. Everybody got along. He, you know, then Jacob wanted to jam. So the three of us, just Jake, Jacob, Jack, and I got together at Jack's house and ran through some new song ideas that Jacob had. And he said, well, this feels great. Um, so let's do it. And so January of 2012, we all got on an airplane to Nashville and the Black Keys let us use their studio for a month while they were touring the El Camino record. Mm. And we hired a friend of ours who had become a top producer in Nashville uh, named Jay Joyce. He's worked with everybody from Cage the Elephant to Nancy Griffith, you know, he's all over the place, you know, Eric Church, you know, he does like, he'll do country and then he'll do, you know, alternative. Mm. He had a band called Iodine, which was really great if you want to check them out. He kind of looks like Mickey Rourke back in the 80s, you know, the leather jacket, the hair kind of messed up, kind of a rugged guy, but he's an incredible songwriter, incredible producer and guitar player. And we just had a ball and so when we approached him to produce the album, it's funny because we kind of scared him a bit. He goes, well, you know, send me the demos. <laughs> and we said, yeah, we don't have any. And he goes, what do you mean? And we were like, we don't have any songs. And he was like, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, what are we going to do? <laughs> we said, well, we have, a, we have an idea that we want to try out. Yeah. And he says, well, what's that? We said, well, Jacob has about eight pages of lyrics that he's interested in turning into tunes. And we just want to go in the studio and jam and write the music on the spot in the studio, like just come up with it while we're there. And then he'll insert, you know, his lyrics after that, right. And massage them in. And that's what we did. Hmm. It was the first time we'd ever done that. Um, and it was really like incredible experience. You know, we'd show up, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, maybe we'd, you know, have a groove or some kind of idea in mind. And we just start playing, massage it into something. And then Jacob would come in and say, you know, oh, hey, you know, maybe go here for the B section or, you know, maybe go over here, you know. And by the end of the day, we'd have a song. Hmm. And we did that, you know, for like 29 or 30 days. And we had a, a full record done at that point. It was the most fun I've ever had making an album. To, to, to tell you the truth, it was. What's What's the difference between how you used to do it before and this? Seems to me such an organic way to make music anyway, because you're jamming, you're creating, and then you're putting lyrics. And I think you know so, some other big bands. I bring up Zeppelin again, but they 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 did that kind of thing too, where they would jam into uh, songs sometimes. What What's What's the difference? Well, the way that it used to work was, you know, Jacob would pretty much have the lyrics, melody, and progression all together. So he would just come in the room and he'd just start strumming and singing and, you know, here's the song and here are the chords. And, 
a lot of times when guys would start strumming, you know, everybody knows this who plays music, right? Like the moment a singer songwriter starts like strumming a certain way and, you know, the chord progression is what it is. The feel of a song at that point is kind of, it's kind of dictated. It's sort of inherent in the rhythm of the right hand or left hand if you're left-handed. Right. And so, you know, um, I don't want to say that you're locked in when that happens, but I, I always kind of found that when you had a, when you had an acoustic guitar strumming away, like teaching you a song, you know, you were, you were kind of locked into something feel wise to a certain degree, you know, like, jung-a, 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 jung. you know, you're, you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. You have to complement that rhythm because yeah, you're dealing with in those parameters of that feel. Right. So what was great about this record was that because it wasn't dictated by somebody strumming a, an acoustic, you know, um we were able to dictate different feels because you know the feel of the song was originating in a lot of cases from the bass and drums you know so you know that's that's kind of how we approached it how did you come up with your sound on the bass because everybody i, I don't know if too many people actually listen to instruments but like people have their own to me and people who have, they have their own signature sound. Like if you really start listening to isolated instruments, you know, playing the bass, okay, you learn, but then you have to have your own sort of feel and groove and tone. How'd you come up with, with yours? Yeah. Um, no, it's a good question. Um, I think it's kind of like the analogy that I could, that I'd use for this is like, if you're a great surfboarder, right? Like, if some kid handed you a surfboard, right? If they handed a pro a surfboard and it was okay, he's still going to be that guy, right? You could hand Steve Lukather a decent guitar and he's still going to sound like Steve Lukather on it, right? It's the, the personality and the playing style is coming from the person. It's coming from the heart, the hands, the brain of that person, you know? And I, I just, I think that for me, sonically for me, I think I have like a, you know, if you were to analyze like my bass tone or something in general, um, you know, it's, I train kind of have a warm, solid P bass tone that's in the groove and play for the song, you know, support the melody and the lyrics, you know, stay back when I feel like there's a narrative that I want someone to pay attention to lyrically, maybe, you know, step out with a fill a little bit more in a turnaround or an outro when people start to pick it up. I kind of picked my spots, but um, I think I just kind of gradually came to a certain sound that I felt worked with my playing style. Right. You know, some people like, you know, there's Chris Squire or JJ Burnell from the Stranglers who have these more like aggressive tones. they you know, they like to kind of really drive the amp and it breaks up and it's gritty. And I love those types of tones, but it it never really kind of suited, you know, my playing style. And, it, it, you know, guys that I grew up listening to that I'm sort of based my style on, you know, to a certain degree were players like Donald Duck Dunn, mm. uh, Bob Glaub, who's a session player. Um, and I just, I always found you know, that I tried to, I tried to have the bass, you know, a little bit more in a, in a traditional sense, sonically, you know, 
it's, I like, it's such a good I like the bottom end, but I like it to be tight. I don't want it. I don't want the low notes wafting yeah. around, you know? So a lot of compression for me, a lot of engineers would tell me that they didn't have to compress my bass in the studio very much because I had a real evenness with my fingers and my right hand when I'd be playing. So they didn't have to, you know, crunch it too hard. You know, it's, it's so interesting. It's such a great description because I think we talked about it too. Like I just want to see fishbone and Norwood Fisher. I mean, you guys don't sound exactly the same, even though you play the same instrument. I mean, he's got his own style, and obviously Flea and all these other, uh, you know, bass players. But man, it just—I think your analogy was so right on because you take your personality and who you are, and you sort of, you know, it's an extension of you. The instrument just becomes an extension of you, and you can kind of, you can kind of feel it in the groove if you listen to those instruments. Yeah. Uh, Makes total sense. One of the things that I heard a while back that really struck me was something that Jim Keltner said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember, but, you know, for those that don't know Jim Keltner, the famous drummer who's played with, you know, every Beatles solo and, you know, Mad Dog's an Englishman, he, you know, Randy Newman solo records. He's played on a, you name it, everybody from Randy Newman to Bill Frizzell to Ry Cooter. He's a very well-respected drummer and is very known for being super creative and he said something like um you know people play who they are people yeah. play their personalities like there's no way around it right and as i've gotten older i i i just think that that's exactly what it is right it's like i don't have the i don't have the aggressive tone right i have like i i feel like my sound is part of my personality right yeah, you know makes, makes total sense yeah. so Wallflowers break up or however that happened. Um, you correct me if I'm wrong. Do you started working with Fiona Apple? Was that, was that the progression or am I missing a piece? Uh, well, the wallflowers are still together. It's just that there's been a lot of lineup changes, which we'll get. Yeah. (laughs) So, but Fiona Apple, um, we had a manager, uh, back in the day that, um, discovered Fiona Apple. He discovered Macy Gray all around the, right around the time, actually that, you know, the wallflowers were signing to Interscope around, around like the 1994, 95 era. Mm -hmm. And, um, he discovered Fiona Mm -hmm. and, uh, he was a fan of my playing. And so he would put me on these records because he was casting them a certain way. He was, you know, casting these albums, based on you know musicians that he knew that he thought would be sympathetic to the to the artist and the music and so uh he brought me in for fiona apple's debut record i played on a handful of songs sort of in between wallflower tours okay and then and then uh he started to manage macy gray and he brought me in to play on half that record her debut record Mm -hmm. um so I i was doing a decent amount of session work around between like 96 and like 2001 that was kind of i was doing a lot of extracurricular work at the time i was working with joe henry who's a great songwriter i did a little bit with michael penn um i did a japanese album you know for a big star out there named kiyosuke himuro you know he was sort of like the sting of japan you know and uh yeah 
you know, and then I got into producing records in the 2000s. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that. So the process of you were involved in some of the songwriting too, right? So I wanted to kind of get a sense of what is your, what is your process for songwriting and then the producing aspect of it, uh, how you, how'd you get involved in the producing? Yeah. You know, the songwriting side of it came later, you know, when we got back together again for that last album that I did with the band in 2012, where Jacob decided, let's let the band co-write the music, you know, before that, it was really kind of, you know, him writing the tunes and presenting them. So that, you know, was sort of the beginning of, of, you know, the songwriting in the, in that band. But um, before that, you know, I would just, I would work on songs with, you know, the singer songwriters of my other bands when I was coming up, you know, I wouldn't say that I was ever really like, you know, focused on being like a songwriter, you know, I would contribute and add maybe, you know, I'd write the bridge, you know, or I would come up with the B section or, you know, the riff, you know, and my career sort of littered with little different examples of my injections and other people's songs. And, you know, sometimes I would get credit sometimes not, you know, so you guys won a Grammy, right? My, my memory with the wallflowers, right? That's right. So Fiona, she didn't win a, a Grammy for that album. Did she? I, I think she did. She did. Yeah, I think, I think she did. So did you get, did you get multiple Grammys then? No, I didn't get one for Fiona Apple. I can't remember what she won for. It may have, may have been like best vocal or video. I'm not sure exactly what what she won for. I know she did on her last album. She won a Grammy. Yeah. Um, I think she won something for for the first album. But I won a Grammy with the Wallflowers uh, for one headlight. Yeah. And the reason the whole band and then Jacob won one on his own for best rock song that right. year for one headlight. But our Grammy uh, that the band got was uh, was a best performance by group or duo with a vocal. That that was the Grammy for that one. So Did you go up and accept the Grammy? Over there in the corner under the TV. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go up and accept it and do all that? No, I don't think that our category was televised that year, but I'll tell you something funny. We went the year before and we lost. Uh so the the next year we went, ah, we're not going to win. So we stayed home and we won. <laughs> so my view on, and, and I just actually won an award for the film that I just produced, Immediate Family. We won a uh, Best Documentary Award at the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. And I stayed home for that and we won. So that's my new motto. You know, if there's stay an award home, ceremony, win. stay home and you may win. <laughs> Congratulations! Uh, congratulations on that. I want to. I want to get into that uh, as well. Uh, just, just to correct myself, because Wallflowers are together, but the members of the band left, and there was different pieces. So Rami uh, Jaffe went. He went to some band. Uh, I don't remember. I think uh, they may be in the Hall of Fame uh, now. Oh, yeah, and Rami <laughs> joined a little a little band called the Foo Fighters. Right. <laughs> Um, which he started working with many years ago when we went on our hiatus, you know, he probably started work. He's probably been in that band 15 years now. Right. Um, and there was that period where we came back and did the album in 2012 and he was splitting time between the two bands, but that just got too difficult. Wallflowers have kind of had a revolving 
cast of characters come in and out. I was there for a very long time. Rami was there for a really long time. And obviously Jacob is still there, but the, the guitar and drum seat, uh, changed quite a lot through the years. And uh, now he's calling it the wallflowers, but he's the only original member left. So, yeah. So when you, when you left and you decided to sort of tap into some of the background that you wanted to do in, in film and, and television, all that stuff, you start a company, uh, fin- phonetic. That's right. Yeah. 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 So w- how did you get into that? And what do you, what does phonetic do? Mm. Okay. Well, so around a year and a half into the touring of that sixth album that we were talking about that we cut in Nashville, mm. um, after about a year and a half of touring, in 2013, I decided to leave. Um, I'd really just come to the end of, you know, I didn't really want to be in a band anymore. <laughs> I wanted to wake up in the morning and say, what does Greg want to do? Not, you know, like life by committee, right? And so, um, and I knew that I wanted to go back in into film. It had been a while since I'd, you know, been in that realm. And it was sort of one of the the areas that I wanted to revisit. And so... Um, I did a few things after I left the band that were unrelated. And then I ended up starting a company with my friend that I've known for 35 years now, Jonathan, uh, Sheldon, who we both had the same music teachers growing up. He lived next door to me, uh, for a while. He actually got signed with his band naked to MCA records in 1997 and put an album out. So we both were musicians and signed bands that have now joined forces, you know, to start a, film and TV production company called, as you said, Fanatic, which is spelled P-F-O-N-E-T-I-C. And um, we at first started specializing in like music documentaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's other things that we have on, on our slate, you know, movies, biopics, you know, unscripted stuff that we're shopping right now. But the music documentaries are, are what uh, sort of, started off the company on the, on the production side. So um, we just uh, finished a film called immediate family, which is the official follow-up to Denny Tedesco's wrecking crew uh, about the 60 session musicians that played on everyone's albums. Right. So Carol Kay, Hal Blaine, Plaz Johnson, and Denny's father, Tommy Tedesco, who was the guitar player. He made that uh, movie about, those cast characters and and uh that interesting era of music and so we came to denny about four years ago with the idea to follow that up with uh the a, a, a dynamic relationship between a handful of session players who have known each other um and worked together for about 50 years now and those players who are the subjects of the new film immediate family are russ kunkel lee sklar Danny Korchmar and Wadi Wachtel. And then there's a fifth member of the band named Steve Postel, who's about 10 years younger than them, who's, you know, a great session player and singer songwriter in his own right. Um, but ha- didn't come up in, in that era that they did in, you know, the seventies playing for all the, the great singer songwriters that those guys worked with from James Taylor, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, you know, these are all the people that were interviewed in our film, you know, in addition to Phil Collins and Lyle Lovett, um, God, who else? Stevie Nicks, Don Henley. Um, they're all in it. 
I mean, besides the movie with what I see in clips of the fantastic, I love the Wrecking Crew too. And I, I just love this genre of, uh, of movies because it's stories that need to be told. Uh, people don't realize that there are amazing, amazing session players. I, the one thing that I, I found, I'm trying to remember who said this in the movie, but he said we're, we're the uh, cover band. We're like the best cover band that plays originals, which is like, man, that is so right on because I, I don't think pe- you you said it or maybe you did say, it, but I sort of glossed over it that they are a, an actual band that that plays together and plays these songs these of some of the musicians you mentioned, but they're all either you know participating in the writing or in the uh, in in playing on these songs. So they're actually playing songs they've participated in creating too. That's exactly right, and that's what I thought was interesting about doing a movie on these guys, right? Is that I knew that there was a full story here from beginning, middle end being that, right? Like, for example, Wadi, you know, Danny, these guys, as you said, they wrote with a lot of the artists that they, that they played with. Right. So Danny Korchmar, he co-wrote most of the songs on Don Henley's solo records, everything from dirty laundry to, you know, all she wants to do is dance was written by Danny Korchmar completely, you know, and then Wadi co-wrote Werewolves of London with Warren Zevon and a guy named uh, Roy Marinell. And, uh, you know, so you're right. What's interesting is that they played on all these records and the difference between them and the wrecking crew was that when they finished these albums with these singer songwriters, they would go on the road with the band, yeah. you know, and, and support the albums that they played on for these solo acts. The Wrecking Crew never did that. The Wrecking Crew were afraid to give up their seats in the studio and lose it to other musicians. So what they would do is they would record these albums with, you know, the Mamas and the Papas and the Association and Frank Sinatra and all of these guys. And then a road band would be put together to go tour with those acts and the Wrecking Crew would stay in the studio and make the next record. So that's what really changed in the singer-songwriter era in the 70s was that the artists brought a lot of players in with them. They were like artist recommendations almost, right? They, you know, and, and the artists that they brought in were good enough to play on the albums, you know? So Carol, you know, brought Danny Korchmar and Russ Kunkel and, uh, you know, and so what ended up happening was um, when, when those artists would go on the road, they would ask these players to, to support the record that they had just made. And that was the difference is that these guys were gutsy enough to take the chance and go on the road. And hopefully when they came back, there was more work for them. Right. And they took those risks and it worked because they were such great players and such great writers. Um, and you know, good hangs, right? Like, as we know, 22 hours in the day, you have to be a good hang. Right. So they had all of those qualities and they've had full careers like, you know, decade after decade because of it. So they thrived all through the seventies. They, th- they were thriving all through the seventies playing on records and, you know, touring. And then they did that into the eighties and now they're all in their mid seventies and they have a band called immediate family. And the reason it's named that is they feel like immediate family, right? They feel that close to each other. And as you said, their, their live shows are comprised of songs that they either wrote, co-wrote, or produced for big artists that they've played with. But they're also writing new material and recording new albums uh, under the name of the immediate family. 
And so their shows are a mixture of their current original music and their interpretations of the songs that they worked on with, with these other artists that, you know, the public really knows and, and loves. So the, uh, the film immediate uh, family where uh, if somebody wants to see that, uh, when would they be able to see that uh, and where? Yeah. So a uh, media family was uh, bought by Magnolia pictures and it is coming out in theaters December 12th. So in about two weeks, um, it's going to have a big one night only blitz across the country. So you can go check, you know, where immediate family's playing, uh, December 12th. And then it's going to, I believe it's going to play for a week in Los Angeles and a week in New York. And if the film does well in the theaters, they're going to keep adding dates. I know some dates have already sold out, you know, um, and then it's going to VOD video on demand for rental and purchase on December 15th. So starting December 15th, you can rent it or buy it on any platform, right? Amazon, Apple, Voodoo, any, anywhere you go for, for that kind of stuff, right? Well, congrats. It's a big thing because it's very, I mean, there's so many people that are trying to make movies and sell movies and in, in the LA area and just in general. So to be able to make it and, and sell it and kind of distribute it, I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. So yeah, no, thank you. I should also mention, I can't say where, but after, after it's been on VOD for about four months, sometime in April, it's going to go to one of the big streamers for an exclusive period of time. So, uh, so that's great. And, you know, we're working on other, other films now. Yeah. I was going to ask you what's next. I, I, you probably can't talk about much, but uh, maybe you can tease a little bit what's next for, for you. Yeah. We've fact. announced a couple of them. You know, we're, we're, uh, filming uh the collective soul documentary right now most people don't know they've been a band 30 years now they've sold about 15 million albums you know they have uh a lot of hits you know and uh an interesting story coming from stockbridge georgia you know some southern boys that that made it um so there's the collective soul film that's in the works and then we are producing uh bob james's documentary bob james the great jazz artist who a lot of people may not know is the number two most sampled artist in hip hop next to James Brown. He's had, you know, got 1500 samples or so, you know? Um, and so that's being directed by uh, the keyboardist of Wilco, uh, Michael Jorgensen, uh, his father, Michael's father was Bob James's sound engineer uh, for his records from 1975 to 1990. So Michael grew up in the studio watching these Bob James records get made by his father. And then he grew up to play keyboards because he loved Bob and was interested in all of that. And now he's been uh, what a member of Wilco for the last 22 years. So, so there's a, there's a mix of jazz musicianship with hip hop in this. Uh, That's right. Well, right. Yeah. There's jazz interview, you know, jazz artists being interviewed. There's hip hop producers interviewed. We've already, we've already got, great interviews with everybody from DJ premier um, to Pete rock, large professor, static selecta DMC from run DMC. You know, it's, it's, it's been uh, a really interesting film to make because of this crossover. You know, a lot of people know Bob is the guy who wrote the theme song for taxi. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but 
you know, the sort of hip hop side of things that he's involved with that sort of that he fell into, right. Um, is, is an aspect of the film that adds a real interesting dimension to us. So it's interesting to me because a lot of the, uh, back in the day, uh, musicians, they really didn't appreciate, uh, sampling and they really didn't appreciate their music being used in hip hop. Mm-hmm. And some did some, you like had a, you know, they took it as a compliment. Oh, you know, my music's being, as long as you get paid for it. But I think after, after they started getting paid for it, they felt much better about it. But what was, uh, do you know, what was, you know, Bob James's sort of uh, mindset around that? No, that's a good question. Um, well, what, what you said is exactly what happened. Like a lot of people, um, my understanding of it so far is that, um, you know, when sampling was in, was a new art form, and you start hearing bits of your songs and other people's material, and you start going, "Hey, wait a minute! They're <laughs> they're stealing my music, right?" And so, what I think has happened over time, you know, there's been a graduation, right, from sort of being upset about things being used without permission, and then people find out that, oh, you know nobody really meant any harm. It was just like, because no one had done that before, nobody really knew what to do. You know, they were taking samplers, they were cutting things up, they were being creative and they weren't even thinking that way. Right. And so then people like Bob, you know, had to kind of say, Hey, happy for you to use my stuff, but you know, can we figure out some kind of compensation? And then the law, has developed and things changed in that world and people started to get permission and come up with rates for using clips of material and some artists even of course um want to review the song that they're being asked to be slipped into because you know maybe it's not something that you want to be a part of lyrically maybe it's not something that you're you know that that you'd want to be associated with or um you know, maybe, you know, I know for, you know, it's interesting because Pete Rock said about Bob that he was cool as long as you used the song the way it was, like the tempo, you know, that if you didn't manipulate his thing and turn it into something else, he was okay with it. Interesting. You know? So Dilla wouldn't be, Dilla wouldn't be using his samples because he would manipulate every single song, every single, uh, you know, sample. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say him, you know, because of course I am, I, I'm a fan of, of Jay Dilla and, um, but, but you're right. Like, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, if he had taken like Welcome to the Mardi Gras by Bob and then like, you know, sped it way up or something or slowed it way down, you know, maybe Bob would have said, you know, I, I don't know about that, you know? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask all my guests. Uh, do you remember, and if so, what was it, your first concert experience? The concert you attended? The first concert I attended was yeah. Willie Nelson at the Greek Theater with my dad when I was like 10. Super cool. It uh, smelled interesting. Like what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, was that, your first, was that your first experience with cannabis at the Willie Nelson concert uh it was it was my probably the first time i wondered what is that yeah exactly i remember i, I went to my very first concert was pink floyd uh but like not the, the when they got back together 
this momentary lapse of reason, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, that was the first time I went with my dad. The 1987? Mother. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, it was like 100,000 people. But uh, wow. the stadium is no longer there. Uh, but they passed a joint around. That was the first time, like, uh, you know, took that and... Hit it, hit it really quick. So my dad doesn't see and, and his brother. And that was the first concert I ever went to with my dad and his brother and my, and my two friends. Never went to another concert again, first and last. My dad never, ever took me uh, to another concert. That was it. He was like, I, I don't like this experience. It wasn't good. Right. Hilarious. Uh, be, being, being a musician, I'm assuming you don't go to a lot of uh, live concerts uh, or, or, or do you? Because uh, a lot of musicians I talk to, like, it's what I did for a living. I don't need to go and, and see other concerts. Is that, is that sort of how you feel? Because I was going to ask you last concert you attended, but I'm not, not sure. You know, that's the I, so there is a little bit, there had been a little bit of that aspect for me where I just, you know, I was gone so much and played so many shows that the last place I wanted to find myself in was like sitting in an audience watching a show. But I would say that, um, Every now and then when something really interesting to me comes to town, like I'll, I'll go, you know, I mean, I went to Wilco because, you know, I'm working with Michael and I like the band and, and, uh, you know, I wanted to see them. So the last show I went to was Wilco, um, in uh, downtown at the, uh, Ace theater. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. I hadn't been to a concert in a while and they're so phenomenal. And that, and that place, I mean, that's one of my favorite magical places in LA, the theater, awesome. the Ace Hotel. It's, it's a, a great show. little theater yeah. and it sounds incredible in there. If you get it right, you know, if you get it right, you're right. Yeah. Meaning turn down and let the <laughs> place. Yeah. Let the acoustic. It's got such an amazing thing. You know, the history of that, right. With the uh, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, that's right. That that's so right. It's really, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, you know, people like just to add to that for a second, you know, the types of people that interest me, you know, that I'll step out for, you know, it, are, are, are people like, you know, like Daniel Lenoir or Emmy Lou Harris or, you know, or a Wilco, you know, it's like it, it, that kind of stuff where, I, you know, or Tom Waits or something, you know, where it's like, whoa, this is going to really be something, you know, like I'll, I'll try and get out for that kind of stuff, you know general i'm when was the last time tom waits performed it's been a while yeah. jacob and i saw him on the i think it was the big was it big time or big yeah i think it was big time yeah. like in 86 you know it's been a while it's so pantages yeah it was inc- it was unreal wow. all right so i'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit and um i always ask people if you had to listen to five albums for the next year what would be those albums? And I know like for me, those albums kind of change all the time. And just to preface, you don't have to remember the name of the album. You can just say, you know, Pink Floyd or whatever, whatever that would be. And that's fine. So what would be your five albums for the next year? Wow. (laughs) Um, Let's see here. You have to, cut this pause out right <laughs> <laughs> no everybody everybody does the same thing very few people right off the top uh you know even f- for me like i have my two three that i should but the other two they vary depending on my mood uh so i would say five albums that i 
I guess what you're saying is like five albums that I would be drawn to listen to a lot this year for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. yeah, these are the only albums you can listen to all year long, and these would be it. Okay. Um, the debut China Crisis album, Different Shapes, something I can't remember, Different Shapes and Patterns. I love that record. Um, if you, I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, Steely Dan, Royal Scam. Um, Julian Cope, Fried. Love Julian Cope. Okay. Yeah. Um, Stuart Copeland's band, Clark Kent, was reissued on vinyl. I love that record. I'd, I'd stick that in there. Are we at four or five? Four. You need one more. <laughs> I just recently picked up Double Nickels on the Dime by Minutemen on vinyl. Wow. It was a huge album for me when I was growing up. Huge. Super cool. Those are really cool uh, albums. I don't, I don't think anybody has said any of those albums, not just even one. I like, yeah, so really, really cool. Um, okay, so uh, last bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. It was sacrilege when I look back on it. <laughs> I took all of the album covers from all of my vinyl and nailed them up all over my room. <laughs> I did that in the basement of my house. <laughs> all across, you know, the sides, all the way down the walls. It was my room was literally album covers all over the wall, only album covers. So it looked very uniform and cool, right? Because it was only records. It was all 12 by 12s, right? But that's that's what I, that's what I did. That's super cool. I love that. Yeah. I, I actually had a room in my old house, not the whole, not, not my, but I had two walls that were just covered. I actually did it when I was a kid. I did the same thing that you did. I had uh, album covers, but what I did was bought a sophisticated uh, collector. I had frames and I framed my vinyl and I had them all over the wall. I still have actually, and I rotated them. So every couple months, I would take them out and put some new ones on so it wasn't as permanent. But I still have that in my bedroom. I wish I took the care that you did. I wish I framed all of them and hung them up. But I have a sneaking suspicion that I either drove nails through the top and bottom or taped them profusely on the back. And then when I would take the tape off, I would pull half of the artwork off. You know, I, I... I don't know that I had the patience back then. I was like, I got to get these up. This is going to look great. Ah, you know, it's a super cool idea though. I will end. I will actually, I'll give you one bonus here in yeah. the end. Yeah. Something we didn't talk about more than anything. I like to read and I read a lot of rock, you know, and music bios and so forth. So that's, that's, that's another like pastime for me. I, that I enjoy. I read a lot of books on producers and musicians and you know and people like that so you know i've i've written some good ones lately um i actually read a great book on john mcgeech the guitar player from magazine and susie and the banshees and pil it was a great book and then i i read graham coxon's book he's the guitar player of blur uh-huh he wrote a really great book um what else did I read? 
I'm reading Lowell Tolhurst's book, Goth, right now. He was the founding member of The Cure, along with Robert Smith. Hmm. Um, yeah. I read both Will Sargent books. He was the guitar player, or he is the guitar player of Echo and the Bunnymen. So he's uh, got two books out. He's going to write a third. The first one is Bunny Man, and the second one is called Echoes, a memoir continued. So, you know, I'm, I, I've got Jay Dilla's book over here. You know, I'm, yeah, I got Jay Dilla's book, a great book. I'm, I'm audible listening to it too. I, great suggestions, by the way. I love Renos. I, so I just finished Curtis Jackson's 50 Cent. I finished his book, which I thought was incredible. Such a good book. And I, I think I did Jay Dilla's and it, there was a hip hop book. There's, I think I read Rick Rubin's book, which I highly recommend. Yeah, I have that too. too. Yeah. The cre- Creative creativity act creative act i think and then i read um there was a a book by bob spitz on led zeppelin which Mm. got horrible reviews people hated it but i love that book because he just talks about all the debauchery and all that stuff and people like oh that didn't really happen but i i tend to think that it did so yeah i love i love those kind of books too yeah so i just wanted to throw that out there because you know oh i'm also i'll end on this i'm also reading a book right now called um it's about uh, 451 Records, the label out of San Francisco in the late 70s, early 80s that put all those albums out by those new wave bands from San Francisco, like Romeo Void, Translator, Wire Train, Red Rockers. Mm-hmm. Um, the the in-house producer was a guy named David Kahn, who went on to work with everybody from Paul McCartney to Bruce Springsteen, you know, he's a great producer and he produced all those 415 records. It was a label started by um, Howie Klein. Uh And so, you know, these, some of these things that I get into are niche. I I love it. I love that kind of thing. One more than I'll, I'll recommend the the Beastie Boys book. Yeah. Um, I think that's what it's called. Actually, <laughs> the Beastie Boys book. That's the name of it. Uh, and I heard them. I, I I went to see them do it live. Like they did this whole, you know. And I think it's on Apple. You can you can uh, buy the them going over the on stage and going over all the things that are in the book. So I highly oh, recommend awesome. it. Yeah. I also uh, like the Chris Blackwell book, Islander. Get oh, that? Okay. Yeah, it's good. I'm writing it down. Yeah. So that's that's a big passion of mine you know i just love to learn about people which is why i do these documentaries i think you can wrap with that you know it's preserving people's stories is sort of where i'm at you know love it don't want people's experiences and lives to be lost to time so i like these you know i like making documentaries and and you know memorializing people's time on earth and what they contributed i think it's a it's a it, it's a gift that you're giving to the world because otherwise a lot of these people who made a tremendous contribution in people's lives, uh, nobody would know. So I right. think what you're doing is, is incredible. Uh, just to kind of end it, if somebody wants to uh, contact you or maybe, you know, contribute or, or invest or whatever it is that you may want to do with the company because they, they want to help out and be aligned with you and preserving some of these, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, you can just go to phonetic.com and there's a contact on there, you know, P F O N E T I C.com. Cool. Is an easy way to get a hold of us. And, uh, yeah. 
Awesome. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's Greg, thanks fun. so much for your time. This is great. I learned so much and I got some good book recommendations from this and some good music recommendations. So I really appreciate it. And best of luck, man, on the media family. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I'll see you soon. <laughs> Take care, buddy. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.